Hello, I'm Nick Spencer, and this is Reading Our Times, the podcast that explores the books and ideas that are shaping us today. Listen with us, and we'll introduce you to the books and the ideas that illuminate ourselves and the world we live in. Today on Reading Our Times, we join a conversation that's energised both sides of the political spectrum in the US and in Europe. I stand here knowing that my story is part of the larger American story, that I owe a debt to all of those who came before me, and that in no other country on earth is my story even possible. Today, I want to lay out my vision for a truly meritocratic Britain that puts the interests of ordinary working-class people first. The dream of a meritocracy. If you work hard, if you believe in yourself, if you believe in America, then you can dream anything, you can be anything, and together we can achieve absolutely anything. And we ask, what if that meritocracy turns out to be much more sinister than we thought? Right. This is sure to, uh, to provoke many of my colleagues. I bet it will. From the think tank Theos, this is Reading Our Times, the podcast that explores the books and ideas that are shaping us today. Presented by Nick Spencer, Senior Fellow at Theos. Hello. Do you deserve your salary? What about the house you live in? Your job? Your education? Your grades? For the last half century or so, Western democracies have been slowly crafting themselves into meritocracies, escaping the clutches of class and prejudice that have been so powerful for so long, and building cultures in which, as one American president after another has told us, people can go as far as their talent and their work will take them. And yet, If the populist backlash and widespread sense of social, political and economic disillusionment of recent years are anything to go by, this plan isn't working out too well. Perhaps we're not as meritocratic as all that. Perhaps the whole structure of our alleged meritocracy is skewed in favour of certain ideas, certain skills, certain people. Indeed, More ominously than that, perhaps the very idea of meritocracy is fatally flawed. Our veneration of merit overlooking something profound about human nature and our fragility. This is the subject of the new book by Michael Sandel, The Tyranny of Merit, What's Become of the Common Good. 
Michael is one of the best known and most widely respected moral and political philosophers of our time. He is the Professor of Government at Harvard University and has written on liberalism, justice, the market economy, and now on the tyranny of merit. Michael, welcome to Reading Our Times. Good to be with you, Nick. I suspect that not many of us talk about meritocracy, but most of us would prefer to live in one than any alternative. So let me begin by asking you what's right about merit. Surely meritocracies are better than aristocracies. Yes, and the defense of meritocracy depends very heavily on the contrast with aristocracy, the idea that my fate is determined by the accident of birth. A meritocracy argues by contrast that we should be free to rise regardless of the class or race or social background into which we're born. And this is a further important aspect that if we do rise and if we do flourish, we deserve it. We deserve the benefits that flow from the exercise of our effort and talents. That's the appeal. The dark side arises when we also become inclined to think that those who don't flourish must deserve their fate as well. They must have no one to blame but themselves. So there's a bright, shining, inspiring side to meritocracy that often distracts us from the harsh judgment it conveys on those who fail to rise. So we like the sunshine, if you like, but not the shadows of a meritocracy. Yes. And the more we look into it, and this is what the book tries to show, is that even the shiny side of it has some troubling aspects. So that the tyranny of merit, it turns out, is not only exerted toward those at the bottom, those who are left out, those who don't rise, those who lack credentials, but the tyranny of merit also exerts a harsh force and judgment, even on the successful. And we can get to that perhaps, Nick. Mm. Yes. As you said in a previous book, markets leave their mark on people. And, and, and from what you're arguing, meritocracies leave their mark on people too, and not always a particularly positive mark. Let, let's, let's begin by tracing the, the word itself. It's actually a relatively recent coinage, isn't it? And, and, and it comes originally as a, as a warning rather than the promise. Tell us about its origins. It first came to prominence by, in a short book by Michael Young a British sociologist, in the late 1950s. He coined the term meritocracy, and though today we think of meritocracy as an ideal to aim at, no politician argues against meritocracy. A great many argue that people should be free to rise as far as their talents and efforts will take them. For Michael Young, meritocracy was a dystopian ideal. He saw the bright side, he saw that meritocracy enabled people to avoid being fixed in their fate by the accident of birth, as in a hierarchical aristocratic society. 
but he glimpsed the dark side. And that was his point when he coined the term. He said, the closer we come to approaching a perfectly meritocratic society where success and failure are perfectly aligned with people's own efforts, the more likely we're going to find those on top considering their success, their own doing, their due. And the more we're going to, those on the bottom will feel humiliated, demoralized, Mm. believing that they landed on the bottom because they lacked the effort and the talent, the striving, the grit to succeed. So he saw this as a source of deep division He even went so far as to predict that in the year 2034, there would be a populist revolt (laughs) against the, the meritocratic elite. He was right, except that revolt came 18 years ahead of schedule. That's extraordinary. I mean, it's remarkably prescient on, on, on so many different levels. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you, you mentioned the fact that you know no politician um, speaks against meritocracy these days. And one of the many things that struck me from your book was that, um, if anything, that's a massive under-exaggeration, that the, the level of political rhetoric, you major on presidential rhetoric, but also prime ministerial rhetoric, yeah. that obsesses about meritocracy is overwhelming. And, and particularly from Clinton and politicians of the centre-left and supremely with Obama, um, but but this is, again, relatively recent. This is last 30 years or so. So there's clearly something that shifted rhetorically and politically in Western democracies yes. that's seen us obsess on merit. Why? Why are we fixated on this now? It comes in, just as you say, in the last four decades, roughly speaking, uh, on the center left and on the center right. It's not a partisan view. And I think the reason we see it come in in the last four decades is that this is a time, after all, of deepening inequalities, inequality of income and wealth, but also inequality of social recognition and esteem. And so the response of mainstream politicians and parties to the inequality has not been to take on the inequality head-on and to deal with its structural sources, but instead more or less to accept the premise of highly unequal societies, but to say, don't worry, mobility can be the answer to inequality. If you go to university, if you prepare yourself, if you gain academic qualifications, you too can rise, you can climb, you can rise out of your condition. So I think this ideology appealed to center-left and center-right politicians because it seemed to be an almost uncontroversial way of taking on that inequality on an individual level, what you Earn will depend on what you learn. This is what the politicians said. That's actually a phrase Bill Clinton used time and again. Yes, that's very interesting. 
In particular, I think that the shift from what would have been in the post-war period an attempt to address issues of inequality through structural changes yes. to individual changes. In Les Trente Glorieuses, as the French call it, in the 30 years after the Second World War, we're conscious of inequality, but we try to address it through significant public investment. That whole political window has shifted, hasn't it? We still care about inequality, but we think the best way of addressing it is through individual achievement, except for the fact that it isn't, is it? Well, that's, that's right. It's turned out that this solution, this settlement, this alternative to fundamental structural att attempts to reform the economy to deal with inequality, um, this attempt to do it through individual striving and individual mobility rising um, turns out not to have succeeded on two levels. First, there isn't all that much upward mobility, rates of intergenerational mobility in the U.S. and in Britain are not very great. In fact, they're less. The chance of rising from the economic class background of your parents is less in the U.S. and in Britain than in many European countries. Than in yes, I noticed you, you said it should be called a Danish dream rather than the American dream, shouldn't well, it? Well, that's just it. it, it <laughs> in Denmark, in Canada, in, uh, in many uh, Northern European countries, the, inter the chance for intergenerational mobility is far greater than in the U.S. and Britain, even yeah. in China the rates of upward mobility one generation to the next now by some measures exceed that uh, in the U.S. And so it doesn't fit the facts on the ground, this mantra, if you work hard and play by the rules, you can rise as far as your talents will take you. But there's a further reason it failed. It generated a kind of insult to those who were left behind through these four decades of globalization. Because what it says to them is, you're not flourishing in the new economy. You didn't get a, a lustrous credential. You didn't get a four-year university diploma. Your failure must be your responsibility, your fault. Yes. So implicit in the promise if you get a, a degree or an advanced degree, then you too can rise. Implicit in that offer, in that advice, is an insult. If you don't rise, mm. it must be your responsibility. This reflects the insult, reflects the individualistic conception of rising of mobility that we've talked about. Yeah, I think... What is really fascinating about the book is that there are people who have made this criticism of meritocracy and then have said that the, that the response is, uh, as it were, more meritocracy. What we're facing here is a practical problem. And yes, there are problems with the system, but that's simply because it's the right system that's not functioning well. Yeah. And key to your argument is that there may be an element of truth, certainly, but even if it did function well, there is something in principle wrong with 
meritocracy rather than simply with the practice of its functioning. Yes. So let's get to the heart of the issue, which is the which is the principled objections, principled moral objections we might have even with a perfectly functioning meritocracy. There are two. One of them is that the talents that enable me to get ahead in a market society like ours, having those talents in the first place is not my own doing. Those talents may reflect gifts, endowments that I just came by, whether because of my upbringing or even that I may simply have been born with those talents. And furthermore, the fact that I happen to live in a society that prizes and rewards the talents I happen to have, that's certainly not my doing. That's my good luck. LeBron James is a great basketball player. And yes, he practices hard. And yes, he developed his talents with great effort. But is it his doing that he lives in a society that loves and rewards basketball rather than living, let's say, in in uh, the Renaissance, when they really didn't care much about basketball, but preferred fresco painters. And then there's the the further moral objection, uh, which is uh, to do with the humiliating effect, the demoralizing effect on those who don't happen to have the talents that the society uh, heaps rewards upon. And uh, so this is the problem, really, of meritocratic hubris, the tendency, insofar as we live in a society with broadly equal chances, though we fall short, those who land on top tend to have an attitude towards success that inhales too deeply of that success. This is the meritocratic hubris that leads those on top to look down on those less successful than themselves. And this is corrosive. It erodes our solidarity, doesn't it? Yes, it's at odds with solidarity. It's corrosive of the common good. So these are two reasons why even a perfect, perfectly functioning meritocracy would be morally unsatisfying, morally questionable. I, I think there's something that uh, is shared in, in, in those two moral reasons, both of which can be traced back to, um, I think, a philosophy of the person. I, I went back to, to reread your first book about liberalism and the limits of justice, where you, where you argue at length and, and, to my mind, very convincingly against um, John Rawls. I, I detect in your work a, a focus on, on the human person, not explicitly necessarily, but particularly here, yeah. kicking against the idea that there can be such a thing as, as, as it were, all-encompassing agency, that anything that I do can be explained through my exercise of my talents and my reason. And in actual fact, I, I sense that you have an idea of the human person which is much more interdependent and fundamentally relational, that we don't, we cannot possibly exist in isolation. We cannot be unencumbered selves. Yes. I mean, you've, you've put it beautifully, Nick. Thank you for that. There, there is underlying my critique, a conception of the person 
that goes all the way back to my earlier books, underlying the idea that my success is my own doing, and I therefore deserve the rewards that flow from, from my talents, underlying that is a conception of the person as ultimately self-creating. It's a notion of self-mastery. And in some ways, this is an exhilarating idea of freedom, or so it seems, that I am the author of my fate, the master of my destiny, that I am self-making and self-sufficient. And if I am, then, if the rules are fair, I deserve everything that comes from the exercise of my talents and gifts. But that's a mistaken view of the person, and I think it's a flawed conception of what freedom means. Mm. Because it does presuppose that we are ultimately self-creating, freely choosing, unencumbered selves, self-defining persons in ways that don't ultimately embed us in a shared way of life or a set of mutual obligations and dependencies. And so the remedy to the tyranny of merit, as I see it, is a greater sense of humility, the kind of humility that comes from seeing ourselves as persons, as human agents, as encumbered selves, as embedded in a shared way of life with mutual dependencies and mutual obligations. So the antidote to the tyranny of merit is a keener sense of humility, the kind of humility that can come from being aware of the role of luck in life, or some would say the role of grace, the ability to reflect on my circumstance, however exalted or modest it may be, and to look on someone else and say, there but for the grace of God, or the accident of fortune, or the luck of the draw, go I. That openness to the contingency or the accident or the element of grace in life conduces to a certain humility. It also opens up space for a richer conception of solidarity and the common good. And that ultimately is what's at stake for me in the critique of the tyranny of merit. But just as you say, it reflects a certain conception of who we are as persons, as moral beings. This is Reading Our Times, a production of the think tank Theos. After the break, we dive deeper. The tension between merit and grace goes all the way back to early debates about salvation. Up next, we expand the political conversation into a deeply personal and centuries-old theological debate.
If you're enjoying Reading Our Times, why not check out The Sacred, also from Theos? I'm Elizabeth Oldfield, and every episode, I explore our deep values and the stories that shape us with a range of guests, from artists to archbishops, politicians to poets. On The Sacred, we seek to build empathy and the ability to engage across our differences, all the while getting to know the people behind the positions in our divided public debates. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you usually listen. Welcome back to Reading Our Times. Today we're talking to Michael Sandel, political philosopher and author of The Tyranny of Merit. Where do we go now if we want to recapture that relational concept of the person in a time which has seems to have been obsessed with individualism and sovereign autonomy and meritocracy and so on and so forth? The tyranny of merit is an attempt to, to grapple with exactly this challenge, as you've described it, Nick. But we need to, well, we need to do a few things to reorient our attitudes towards success and to redirect, to, to create more space for a politics of the common good. That's really the aim. I think we need to do at least three things. We need to rethink the role of universities as arbiters of opportunity because they figure centrally in the allocation of opportunity and social esteem in the meritocratic society we have now, imperfect though it is. Second, we need to put the dignity of work at the center of politics. Those of us who spend our lives in the company of the credentialed can easily forget for all the emphasis, the rhetorical emphasis on rising through a university degree, most people don't have a four-year university degree. Mm. Not in the U.S., not in Britain, not in Europe. Mm. The majority of people don't. So it's folly to create an economy that's premised on the idea that dignified work and a decent life depend as a necessary condition, on getting a four-year university degree. We have to find ways of supporting other forms of learning yeah. for meaningful work and to shift the prestige and social recognition to recognize the moral importance of the work and social contributions made by those who, who are not in the elite professional classes. And finally, none of this can happen without a kind of moral, maybe even spiritual turning, reflecting on our meritocratic hubris, interrogating our own success, appreciating the role of luck or fortune or grace in helping us on our way, and recovering a sense of our indebtedness to the families, the communities, the countries, the ways of life that situate our striving and that 
have a claim on us that give rise to moral obligations that reflect our, our mutual indebtedness. So these are some of the ways I'm hoping to, to suggest a kind of turning, or at least to show what it might look like in our public culture, in our politics, and in our own self-understandings. Yeah. Well, let's pick up on that spiritual turning and also that word grace that we've mentioned a, a couple of times here. One of the bits of the book I loved was your brief excursion into fifth century theology, <laughs> which is not, you know, a, a, not a common discourse for many books. But you rehearsed briefly the debate between Augustine and the British monk Pelagius around the role of free will in salvation. Pelagius insisting that free will is important and Augustine robustly rebuffing him in in a strange way that's a forerunner isn't it of uh, the discussion we're having today in fact at one point you even call pelagius a a forerunner of liberalism which is (laughs) a a lovely phrase what can we learn from them yes fifth century monk yes well what we learn it's a striking uh parallel a preview, one could almost say, a moral preview of our debates about meritocracy. Now, when we think about meritocracy, we're, we're essentially debating uh, income and wealth and power and position and prestige and who deserves, who deserves what. But the tension, the debate between merit and grace goes all the way back to early debates about salvation. Is salvation something we earn or something we receive independent of our merit by the grace of God? Mm. And early theological debates raged about this very question. And Augustine, as as you've said, argued against the idea that salvation is earned, that it's a reward for meritorious behavior for a life well lived. And uh, Pelagius said, well, there is at least some role for human free will. And Augustine thought that this was dangerous and blasphemous because It challenged the omnipotence of God. If God has to answer to an independent standard of who Mm -hmm. deserves to be saved, his omnipotence is impaired. And this debate raged uh, through the Protestant Reformation. Mm -hmm. Martin Luther reasserted this Augustinian position against the idea that being an observant Christian and observing the rites, performing the rites, and glorifying God could lead to salvation. Uh, Luther uh, drew on this old Augustinian idea that no, merit has nothing to do with it. And then ultimately with the Puritans in America, the idea of good works gradually came to be seen not only as a sign, but even as a source of salvation. And so merit then triumphed over grace in the Puritan Protestant work ethic in America. So this debate began as a debate really about 
whether we deserve salvation or receive it as a gift. And now that this debate is reiterated in our mm-hmm. time, in our debates about income and wealth and power and position. And in both cases, grace is the underdog. Merit tends to win the upper hand, mm. but it leads to a certain kind of hubris. Yes, I guess. I mean, I think that's that's all absolutely true and uh, and extremely important. But I guess there's one critical difference, isn't there? In that, it is easier to articulate, if not necessarily live by, a theology of grace or a philosophy of grace, if you have a conception of the giver. If you want to trust in, in in the given nature of certain aspects of life, which cuts the ground from under meritocracy, it is easier to do so if you have some sense of creation as a gift, of the human as a gift, of you being creaturely rather than simply autonomous. In other words, if you live in at least a deistic, if not a theistic conception of, of reality, that conception of gift and grace at least make some kind of sense. If you have no one to thank, if creation is not a gift, but it is just there, raw material to be worked on by human agency, the ground is automatically tilted towards meritocracy, isn't it? And and in, in many Western cultures, that is where we find ourselves. The absence of God from this debate changes it a bit. I think you may well be right that it's very difficult to sustain a notion of grace without some conception of God or a creator or our being creaturely beings. Mm. So I would go that far with you, that, that notions of grace are an important source of the restraint on unbridled uh, meritocracy or notions of self-creation. But I want to be careful not to suggest that that is the only moral source from which to challenge the idea uh, that success is our due, uh, the meritocratic idea that our fate is in our hands and therefore the successful deserve what they get, which is why I, I want to gesture toward traditions of grace, but also to secular understandings that emphasize luck, fortune, contingency, even the mystery of fate. Now, the notion of mystery may straddle the secular uh, and the faith traditions. But what what I'm trying to do in the book is to create space and show multiple paths to an alternative to a meritocratic conception of life and of fate and of the person. So uh, that's the small qualification I would make, Nick, to your formulation, which otherwise I I agree with. It is an important, powerful, moral, even theological source from which to challenge the idea that our success is our own doing, and that re- that we should be rewarded based on our merit. But I want to leave open these other paths as well. Does that make sense, do you think? Uh, it makes perfect sense. It's a small, but I think a very important qualification, because the 
resources we need to draw on in order to tackle the, uh, the, the deleterious effects of meritocracy or indeed of um, having a, a market society rather than a market economy, as you put it in a previous book, need to be broad. They can't just come from a single tradition. Otherwise, it's, you, you can't build a coalition. We're coming to the end now, and I want to just pick up briefly the points of contingency, because going back to a philosophy of the person, um, we talked about how you have a very rich sense of um, the, the, the relational roots of our personhood rather than simply being rooted in agency. I think another aspect of your philosophy of the person, if I can put it that way, is contingency, is human fragility and vulnerability. And as you might put it in a theological tradition, our creatureliness. It fascinates me how in a lot of political rhetoric and discourse, lottery is used negatively. It's a postcode lottery, means there's something intrinsically unfair about this. But you turn that on its head in the book, don't you? Yeah. And you make the point that actually contingency is an ineradicable part of our personhood and our humanity. And as such, it is probably fitting to build it in to certain systems. And you talk about building it into college admissions in a, in a, a system I think is wonderful. I'd, I'd love to see it adopted. Just un- unpack that very briefly for us and tell us the logic behind it. <laughs> Right. This is sure to uh, to provoke many of my colleagues, but I, I, point, will. Out, <laughs> I point out that a lot of these elite universities, including the one at which I teach, get tens of thousands of applicants. Most of them are very well qualified to do the work, to do it well, to to help educate their fellow students, their peers, and so on. And so admissions committees make fine-grained distinctions and judgments and so on, uh, of the 40,000 who apply to Harvard and, or to Stanford, they have only 2,000 places. I suggest they call out the ones who are not well-qualified, maybe 10,000, maybe 15,000. You'd still have twenty or 25,000 for 2,000 places. So instead of trying in a very fine-grained way to predict who really is truly excellent in this, that, or the other dimension, have a lottery of the qualified. I suspect the standard of discussion, the richness of the discussion in my classes would be just as compelling as it is now. And this lottery would have an important educational effect, because it would remind the students who were accepted and those who were not accepted, both groups, it would remind them of something that is already the case, that a lot of this is is down to luck. So don't inhale too deeply. Yes. And so so that's the, the suggestion. But to go back to, um, to to build luck in, this is just one small example. I doubt that many universities will take, take me up on this idea. But I think we should do what we can throughout our civil society and public culture to build in reminders, tangible reminders, of the role of contingency in, in our lives, especially in defining success. 
And this, I think, can gradually move us toward a healthier stance toward merit and the meaning of success. We've spoken, before we conclude, I wanted to come back to this earlier deep point that you raised, Nick. We, one source of such reminders, one source of humility is an appreciation of grace for those who come from traditions of grace. There, are, there is also an important civic strand, civic understanding of our mutual dependence and the mutual obligations that go with a robust notion of what it means to be a citizen. So I think the notion of the civic and the notion of the sacred taken together can provide important resources, moral inspiration, but also practices that can recall us to our, our situated nature, our encumbered nature, and rein in the tyranny of merit and the rancorous, polarized politics that it's fueled and that afflicts democracy today. I think that's an extremely positive and acute note on which to end. The, the book is called The Tyranny of Merit, What's Become of the Common Goods. Michael Sandel, thank you so much for talking to Reading Our Times. Thank you, Nick. In our next episode, we read best-selling novelist Nicky Gerard's book, What Dementia Teaches Us About Love. We discuss with Nikki the rise in dementia and how it shapes and shifts our closest relationships and what it says about human value and dignity. Nikki lost her father to dementia a few years ago and the book charts her research into and personal journey with the disease. How you live with it, cope with it and ultimately die from it and what it does to and for the people who lose their loved ones. Reading Our Times is produced by the think tank Theos. Stephanie Tam is our producer, podcast developer and consultant. Phil Bodger is our sound engineer. Our team also includes Abby Allison, Lizzie Stanley and Elizabeth Oldfield. Special thanks to Nina Humphreys, who composed our theme and all the music. You can subscribe to Reading Our Times on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify and anywhere else you get your podcasts. You can also find us at theosthinktank.co.uk where you can listen to all our episodes, discover extra material and leave feedback. Don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes. It will help other people discover the podcast.